I will say that I would argue for assigning the label procrastinator to someone like Darwin. And I would argue that at times Da Vinci acted like a procrastinator. I would also, I also recognize that there are Da Vinci fans and Darwin fans who would strenuously object to that. Anyone that's ever embarked on a creative task or endeavour will probably have experienced procrastination. It's a feeling and behaviour that's loaded with guilt and negative emotions. However, I've always had a gut feel that procrastination or delay can result in better creative outcomes or even something serendipitous. That's why I was looking forward to meeting this week's guest, the Chicago-born, Brooklyn-based, award-winning author, journalist and sometime procrastinator, Andrew Santella. Andrew's most recent book, Soon... An Overdue History of Procrastination, from Leonardo to Darwin to you and me, is a well-researched, intellectual, witty exploration of the subject of procrastination. Note from Andrew, this is not a self-help or how-to-cure procrastination book. In this episode, we discuss procrastination in all its guises, the great procrastinators from history, and the challenge of balancing one's curiosity and desire for productivity in our digitally and socially distracted world. And, of course, we discuss a whole lot more. Without delay, I hope you enjoy this episode with Andrew Santella. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Andrew. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I know that you're a little bit under the weather. with. But I'm soldiering, I'm soldiering on and fighting through it like the warrior that I am. Excellent. So am I. Um, I just so- told a tremendous lie. <laughs> we all suffer from the proverbial man colds. <laughs> But anyway, let's let's get on with it. So, I'd like to start with where we uh, when we start with all our guests asking about where your journey started, so your upbringing. So, I'd like to understand more about your childhood. Um, your you upbr- and me both. <laughs> yeah, well, we're about to. Um, your upbringing, how your early years influenced your procrastination and the influence you maybe your parents had. Okay. Oh, so I'm supposed to talk now? Yes, you are. Okay. Well, so uh, let me tell you the story of my life. So I was I was brought up in Chicago in a middle class uh, family. Uh, my brothers and sisters and I were first generation college kids. So um, went to school at Loyola in Chicago. Uh, yeah. So and then it's it's been downhill ever since. Well, I'm sorry. I would, what, 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 what would you like to know? Well, I'd like to understand. Well, let's let's be specific. Yeah. When did you first realize that you were a procrastinator? <laughs> or were you accused well, of being a procrastinator okay. by a, your parents or teachers? That's a really interesting question because um, I think I've always sensed, or for a long time have sensed, that I was a procrastinator. And I think that I f- f- felt like... I, 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 I think I believed that I was a, 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 a worse procrastinator than I actually am. One of the, uh, I, I recently wrote a, a book about procrastination, and one of the things I learned in the course of writing the book was that I'm, I'm not the procrastinator that I thought I was. And um, so, but I've always had this sense that um, that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, I think that was drummed into me partly by my parents and partly by the nuns who taught me in Catholic school. Um, I, one of the most powerful memories of my childhood is. Uh, what my friends and I call the, the Sunday the Sunday night dreads um, this feeling that you would get uh, around nightfall on Sunday um, that late when, when you <laughs> realize <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it dawned on you that you hadn't done all the things that you were supposed to be doing all, all weekend I grew up I was a tremendous sports fan and uh, in Chicago 
on Sunday afternoon, the thing that... Surely baseball. Yeah. I, I love baseball, <laughs> yeah. but but what I remember during the school year was watching football on Sunday, Sunday afternoons. And, and around the time that the late afternoon game would be ending, uh, the dreads would set in. And what always triggered the dreads uh, was the promos, the commercial promos for the CBS News program, 60 Minutes. There was this ticking clock, tick, 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 tick. And um, they would they would say what was going to be on 60 Minutes that night, and that ticking clock always triggered my my panic. Oh, I was supposed to have done that book report, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always had that feeling that the clock was ticking, uh, like the clock on 60 Minutes. And so, but but n- never felt terribly motivated to do anything about it. But just put it in context. I mean, you you grew up in Chicago. You went to university. You are a writer, a journalist, a writer prolific. I've looked at your bio. You've got a lot of books to your name. So you've not exactly suffered from that procrastinator's writer's block as such. You get on and you do things. Right. Well, one does, uh, or one doesn't eat. So, right. I mean, I I think that's, I think we all wrestle with that, you know, and and, and, uh, we do what we need to do to get by, but maybe we always have this feeling that we're not doing as much as we could. And and I think a lot of us are made to feel really ashamed about that. So do you think just to... Yeah. To round out on the upbringing, because I I didn't go to a Catholic school, but I went. I was brought up in east coast of Scotland and very sort of Protestant. Oh, the frozen chosen. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and there was a, obviously a, a, a very deep sense of that Protestant work ethic yes. instilled in you, and you know the the types of. Uh, those things that you remember that your mother said you never put off to tomorrow what you can do today right. you know that type of seize the day yeah. sense of productivity was instilled in you at school and I, and through the sort of the church and your upbringing so I, I was brought up with a, a deep Protestant work ethic so, and I'm sure it's similar so I'm sure that um, the nature of upbringing does instill in you that sense of guilt or sense of feeling that you should be doing something when you're actually not right. or you're not doing the thing you're meant to be doing. I think you've got that quote at the end of the, the book. Totally. The clock was a huge presence in the classroom mm. in school, in the Catholic schools I went to. I mean, there were, there were always, in every classroom, there were two things on the wall prominently displayed, and they were usually right one on top of the other. One was a clock, and the other was the crucifix with you know the Savior giving himself up, up for us. And and it's sort of an ironic juxtaposition there, you know. The two, I think, it's it's a, it's a toss up as to which made me feel worse about myself, like I was undeserving. I think they both were meant to symbolize that 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 feeling of not being worthy. Um, the clock always moved really slowly for me during mm-hmm. school. Everything moves slowly at that age. It does. <laughs> Not so much as you get a little bit older. But it's funny, you know, even even you know, talking about the work ethic. I mean, I I feel like I I'm a pretty diligent worker, and I feel pretty proud of the work I do. But I mean, even choosing to become a writer, even choosing to be an English major for that matter in college, study literature was like a was I was made to feel like it was a radical choice as opposed to you know following the course that maybe my, my siblings did. You know they. For professional careers, attorneys, mm. uh, CPAs, um, investment uh, people. Well, it's not and exactly there. I mean, you can't. I can't really imagine a neurosurgeon dealing with procrastination. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. There are certain. Yeah, no, the, certain that's, careers a, and, that's a really good point. There's certain careers, and for that matter, certain economic classes that have the luxury of procrastinating. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't think Russian serfs in the 19th century had to, you know, wrestled with procrastination. They're, they're, but I've heard you talk about the general in the Civil War that um, frustrated Lincoln about and with through his procrastination and not starting war. So there are. 
obviously it's a, it can be a tactic as well as an affliction. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, through, if you look at, you know, the, the history of procrastination, I mean, there are times when people have sort of deployed it, as you say, as a tactic. I mean, there's stories of, um, um, you know, African slaves in the in the American South during during the time of chattel slavery, who would intentionally work at the at the slowest possible pace to frustrate, the, you know, their masters. That was that was one of the few ways that they could assert their agency and strike back at at the the evil system. Is that procrastination? Well, I don't think it, it beats the technical definition, but it's a it's an example of ways that we could. Um, assert our agency by either not doing something or doing something at the uh, least efficient pace possible. Mm. And I, I, you know, I, I think whether, I think even, even a schmo, you know, even someone like me, I, I do that in my, in my own way, consciously or subconsciously when I am confronted with an assignment, maybe that I'm not enthused about uh, one that maybe in my arrogance I might think is below beneath me or something I'll drag my feet on it as a way of as a way of showing that you know I'm above this I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put up with this garbage and and it's a silly response but I, I think it's a, not an uncommon one and it's a pretty human one mm-hmm yeah, well, I think there's plenty of examples. If you look at in the labor unions, and certainly um, coming from Britain, there's plenty of examples of go slow yes, <laughs> movements. Right. In, right. Uh, I had never heard there's the term called, there's a term that I learned. Uh, it's soldiering. Uh-huh. Soldiering refers to uh, setting a, a slow pace that everyone in a workplace, whether it's a factory or wherever, uh, w- will follow. So every, if we all agree tacitly to work at this very casual pace, then mm-hmm. no one will expect any more of us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. We, we get into the whole examples of productivity and scientific management, and Frederick Winslow Taylor and all that sort of thing, maybe later. Okay. But I'd like to jump into, well, I want to talk about serendipity because it's a big part of the podcast. But first of all, let's just talk about bit about the different aspects to procrastination because obviously you give examples where it's a result of irrational decision making or poor time management but when we talk about great procrastinators like you talk about in the book like Darwin and Da Vinci I can't really imagine them facing really self-doubt or fear of failure or of them having productivity issues I mean you said yourself in the book that Darwin was a very disciplined character he was tremendously disciplined um, he was tremendously regimented. His daily routine was incredibly regimented. He, you know, he walked three times a day in the morning and at lunchtime in the evening, always at the same walk, always walked around his property in the same direction. So in that sense, he, and, and, and he, he timed out his sort of his work schedule, I think like in 15, 20 minute increments, something mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, in that sense, he was tremendously disciplined. He was also tremendously ambivalent and conflicted, um, especially early in his life, about what he was supposed to be doing and what he wanted to do. He felt pushed by his father um, to go into the ministry, and if not the ministry, maybe uh, medicine. Uh, those were the acceptable careers, The, the uh, and, and, and they didn't particularly appeal to him, and he didn't know what did appeal to him. So he was, he spent a lot of his his early adulthood wrestling with that. He also wrestled with whether he should marry. I mean, he was he was conflicted about that. And, and ah, don't we all? <laughs> well, and, right, but so so here's so this is like so Darwin. He was ambivalent and and conflicted about it. And maybe we should talk about that more, Mark. Yeah. Um, he was he was ambivalent and 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 conflicted about 
whether he should marry. Uh, but he was also disciplined and regimented enough so that the way he dealt with that ambivalence was by making lists. He made pros, pro and con lists, uh, which is like such a nerdy way to decide to get married. But um, that's what he did. And as it turned out, his marriage was a really beautiful, long one. I mean, they loved each other deeply and genuinely. I mean, especially for that era. I mean, they had a very co-equal, well, I don't know if, I, if that's exactly right, but it was a deeply respectful relationship mm-hmm. and their, his family life was really exemplary and, and, and uh, fun to read about. So he made the right choice, I guess, mm-hmm. eventually. A couple of things, because when I was reading the book and going through and reading, I, I had no idea about Da Vinci not being as prolific. I mean, obviously he was a genius yeah. in terms of his vision and his creations, but I didn't realise that he was a tormented um, procrastinator. And there, there was a, I can't remember, I don't, I, one of these quotes, you don't know who said it, but I uh, read it recently actually, separate from this, which was, hell is seeing a vision of yourself in your deathbed of what you could have been. Huh. Yeah, and that sounds like what Da Vinci, how he died. Well, that's the legend. I mean, there are. So I, sh- I should back up, and mm. and I, I will say that I would argue for assigning the label procrastinator to someone like Darwin, and okay. I would argue that at times Da Vinci acted like a procrastinator. I would also I also recognize that there are Da Vinci fans and. Darwin fans who would strenuously object to that, mm-hmm. and they have a they have a point. But uh, anyway, so so um, I might be seeing shades of their procrastination that others might not see. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, the the story about Da Vinci is that he did uh, on his deathbed have some sort of epiphany. Yes, about mm-hmm. what what he could have done. Uh, scholars disagree about damn these helicopters (laughs) just didn't get around to it well right so that 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 story might be apocryphal Mm. but but i mean his it is true though that his contemporaries did think of him as the guy who just never finished anything you know Mm. he was and and the problem wasn't that he was lazy certainly because procrastination isn't really about laziness the problem was i mean his intellectual curiosity kept running away with him and you know before he could finish one thing he was getting on to another and, and getting fascinated by another. Um, and he really does remind me of a lot of uh, sort of friends that I know who make their living as freelancers, as you know, and as video or writing or whatever the creative field is, who are always wrestling with deadlines and, and um, always promising to deliver something by such and such a date and and never quite getting around to doing it. The story is, there's a story about Da Vinci being commissioned to do an altarpiece for a church in Milan. The priests asked him when he could deliver it. And I think he promised, well, it'll probably take me about six months. And it was 25 years before he finally delivered the altarpiece to the, to the church. And I mean, there was a, there's a lot of reasons for that, but what would happen again and again with him was that he, in the course of working on one thing, would be distracted by another of his intellectual pursuits, and, and he would get carried away with it. So, Well, it's almost like yeah. when you're describing it, it's something I, I struggle with all the time. It's the constant um, tension between productivity and curiosity. I mean, you, yeah. when you're a curious mind, there's, you're always at, there's always a risk of you being taken down another rabbit hole going, oh, that's really interesting, when you know you've got something productive to deliver at a certain deadline, and that yes. productivity can be obviously aligned with your creativity and your curiosity in one aspect of your life. So I think, well, maybe come and t- come back to that. Just one um, thing I recently interviewed, and, and uh, we've got a, it's on the podcast now, an interview with Ryder Carroll, who um, is the creator and writer of 
creator of the bullet journal method and writer of the bullet journal book. Um, and he was an ADD sufferer, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. And addressed his ADD and his ability, inability to pay attention to yeah. any one thing for any amount of time through essentially journaling. It ended up being a journaling methodology that he's mm. developed and, and, and registered. Uh, it's fascinating. And, he, and he, his book, he talks about and sums it up as tracking the past, ordering the present and designing the future. Hmm. And there's something really interesting. So it got me thinking while I was reading your book about whether maybe these great procrastinators might have been early before we knew what ADD was. Right. Because Ryder's an incredibly curious, passionate, right. driven, creative person. Yeah. He's a product designer by trade, yeah. but has this inability if he doesn't follow the rigors of maintaining his discipline. You could call it list. You know, you give the example of these great lists that um, yeah. Dar- Darwin wrote. Maybe there is something there that we haven't explored if by journaling potentially, or list-making, it is a way of managing your procrastination and allowing you to deliver. That, that's a really interesting thought. I mean, what, one of the... Hmm, there's so many things I want to so <laughs> say in response to that. Um, I, I guess one of the things... W- when you write a book, or at least a nonfiction book of the kind that I just wrote, I've learned that people expect there to be a certain utility to the book. Like, will this help me do X? And, I mean... When I go on a radio interview or a podcast interview, and they're, they're asking you for answers, I kind of have to fake it and say, "Yeah, well, this might help you with this," and because people expect that, and I want to help, but I really chafe against that conception of what writing should be expected to do. I mean, there are, I mean, there are, there are some books that can do that, but it's also possible that a book could just delight, or, or in the case of a journal, I mean, or make I, you reflect. Um, um, for exactly. me, that, for me, that's the the great thing about where. What you've written, what Ryder has written, meet the the meeting point, the nexus between the two, because yours made me have moments of deep reflection about my own procrastination, my own productivity, and where there's a fine line, and where, you know, where you should push it one further, and what the let's say the equalizer between the two lie. And his also is about the discipline of and try. I'm trying to bullet journal now is daily reflection right. to think about what your priorities are, and to look at. How important is this objective over that objective? And I think that that's for me is is we get too caught up in today. And I know you talk about it in the book about all these uh, productivity and eight great things to make you more productive and all that. These right. this clickbait that surrounds right. us and drowns us. And I think the idea of reflection is something that all of us have to right. practice more. And I think your book really is a great way of making people step back and consider their own yeah. lives. Well, thank, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you saw it that way, so I, I, and thank you for saying so. Um, I have to say, I mean, I, I didn't really think of it as a reflection at the time, although I guess that's a perfectly legitimate way to describe it. I mean, I guess I chose not to address how to fix your procrastination, how to cure it. I'm totally uninterested in curing it. But yeah, exactly. Totally I would say, why would you? It. Right. Because there's a... What I, what I wanted to know or what I wanted to explore was what it felt like to procrastinate, sort of the, you know, the, the experience of it and, and, and how it makes you feel and just the, the bog that you're in. And I think in the course of doing that, I ended up reflecting, it's impossible to think about procrastination for very long without also thinking about, as you say, about what matters to you, what are your priorities, what do you feel, you know, what, do you, what, are, what, are, what are your values? Um, I mean, almost serendipitously, if I may use that term, almost by accident, you end up 
wrestling with these real basic uh, existential questions when you spend any time at all thinking about procrastination. Well, that was my next question, was really what chance encounters, happy accidents and serendipitous life events have occurred that have defined or changed the direction of your journey? The, the writer uses a great, or has a quote in this book, which is, life happens to you when you're busy doing other things. Yeah. And that, I think, so th- that for me, I mean, that's that's a good question and a good segue to get into the serendipity and the meeting point between right. the two. And, and what's where have you encountered it in your life that maybe right. led you even to writing this book? It's something I encounter every day. I mean, the thing about procrastination is that it's not at all about laziness or sloth. I mean, almost always when we're not doing something that we're supposed to be doing, we're replacing it with something else. I mean, this isn't always the case, but it's sometimes the case, and it's beautiful when it is the case. When the, the, the second unsanctioned replacement activity ends up being much more worthwhile and much more wonderful than the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And that happens to me every once in a while, and it's a great feeling. There was a, uh, a newspaper columnist, I think his name was Sidney Harris, I haven't thought of him in so long, it's funny that you triggered this memory for me back in Chicago. And he wrote, would, occasionally would write a column that was nothing but sort of lists of, he, he would say, things I learned in the course of looking up other things. <laughs> so there was these sort of little nuggets of curious facts that he, as, he, as I just said, mm. that he you know encountered serendipitously in the course of looking things up. And, and I have that feeling in the course of my work. I mean, I, I have the luxury of being able to follow because of the nature of my work and because of where I am in my path or whatever. I mean, if I'm intrigued by something, I can afford to follow that little thread. I, I could get away with that. I mean, not everyone has that kind of job, but it's beautiful when I could follow a thread and it ends up leading to something really worthwhile. I mean, it takes you away from what you're supposed to be doing, so that's a kind of procrastination, but that's um, that's a beautiful thing. The other thing is that this is all could also be tremendously self-serving because mm-hmm. procrastinators are great rationalizers. And so like, you know, oh, well, I'm following this wonderful thread. The, you know, we're great excuse makers. You could justify anything. And it's like the joke about, you know, like I'll be, I'll be, I, I can say I'm always writing, you know, I'm in the, I may look, I may look like I'm laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling, doing nothing, I'll say to my wife, but really I'm writing. No, it's and your version of the thinking path. It's, that's right. That's <laughs> right. So. Um, just to sort of explore a bit more that tension between serendipity and procrastination. Everyone I've sort of spoken to and, and it's something I've uh, lived with most of my life. I spent my early years being a, a fairly intense track athlete where goal setting. What was um, your event? Uh, 800 and 1500 meters. Wow. So was it like Chariots of Fire? You were on the beach with the music? <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't far. <laughs> All right. End of interview. Thanks very much. I just insulted much. my host. That was really bad. <laughs> um, well, it, it wasn't that far away because it was, um, uh, I did run along the beach in a place called Carnoustie, but better known for golf rather than uh, running, but near St. Andrews, all the same. But um, it was in Edinburgh that I, I studied and uh, pursued my athletic endeavours. But yeah, usually running along beaches up sand dunes, doing my hill training and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yes, it, it was obviously to the soundtrack of Chariots of Fire <laughs> and Vangelis. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's get back to this. Uh, my point there, Andrew, was about having very clear, big, audacious, in some cases, probably unachievable goals. But by having a strong sense of belief and desire gives you the impetus to take actions day by day by day. And I'm that would could be applied to athletic endeavours. It could be applied to anything from a career standpoint. And by taking these actions, I think 
and my gut feel is from Red and having spoken a lot about serendipity, you have chance encounters. Things happen you maybe didn't expect or plan for, and that's where life steps in. And if you're a procrastinator, you maybe don't take the actions that you you need to. But also at the same time, I'm, I'm because I've experienced this, I've often had a, a strong sense of gut feel, whether it's when in the case of writing, producing something, creating a, something. In the process of creation, I think you put off because your gut feel is, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. And that could also be serendipitous. So it feels to me that there is a tension there. Yeah. There's a positive thing in relation to procrastination, that it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Right. And w- working that all out is complicated and difficult, at least for, for me it is. It's hard to know when, you, as you say, you really do need to wait and, and there's legitimate reasons to wait uh, versus um, I'm just rationalizing and making excuses because I don't want to do the work. It's hard for me to work that out when I'm rationalizing, when, I'm le- legit- when I have legitimate reasons for what I'm doing. Well, what about the irrational? I mean, you must have the, yeah. the gut, that gut sense a lot of the time as a procrastinator that I'm just not ready. Because there comes that point when you are ready and you get on with it and you deliver, as you say. It's- right. Well, it also has to do with running into the idea that I have the luxury of making that decision and, and, and following that gut feeling. I mean, and a lot of it has to do with sort of the um, the image that we have of certain vocations. Like, you know, the, a writer. Mm-hmm. A writer can have writer's block. A writer can take a long walk on the beach for inspiration. I mean, I think that's all garbage, but people have this idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I were an auto mechanic, I wouldn't have the luxury of waiting for inspiration. I, I wouldn't say, I will, I'll get around to that oil change, but first I need to go take a, a walk on the beach. You're just expected to do the work. I mean, there are times as a writer where I feel like I need to tap into that that very workmanlike attitude, a car, an auto mechanic attitude, and just crank it out. Because in, in the cranking, you can sometimes generate really great stuff. Um, so there's there's value to cranking if you know if mm-hmm. I you know if, yeah. if I'm making any sense but on the other hand there's also sometimes value to waiting and um, following your gut or whatever so it, and and I don't know when it's time to do one thing and when it's time to do the other I don't have the answers every day I wrestle with it mm-hmm. and uh, it's 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 a, it's a difficult mystery I mean everyone wrestles with it I don't did I did I make any sense there yeah you do but it, it raises, kind of a little bit it yeah, raises maybe. it raises another question because there's the there's the procrastination that happens because you know you've got a deadline yeah. and everyone suffered that. They suffered the exams, yeah. the delivery of a project. You keep putting off and putting off and putting off and there are many reasons for that. But then there's just the delaying generally where there's maybe no deadline. Yeah. But it's just something you know you need to do at some point. And I wonder if there's a difference there and what are the factors I mean, that lead to those two different states. I run into people all the time that tell me, oh, I, I, I need to do my work under the gun. Mm-hmm. I need to wait until the last possible minute because that's when I do my best work. I need mm-hmm. to feel the deadline pressure. I've also talked to, you know, academic researchers, like people who work in psychology or the social sciences and, and research this sort of thing. And they will tell you that that's garbage and that there's no such thing as doing great work under deadline pressure. You're just, you know, you're just handicapping yourself. If we could come back to this idea of self-handicapping, that's like one of the most fascinating concepts uh-huh. that, uh, that, so self-handicapping is like really, this might be a, this might be a good time to unpack that yeah. a little bit. I think self-handicapping was a term that was developed in, in regard to uh, substance abuse. So uh, substance abusers are exercising a kind 
kind of self-handicapping. Self-handicapping means you're creating obstacles and putting these obstacles in your own path to success. Mm-hmm. Well, why on earth would anyone do that? Well, the idea is that these obstacles give you, uh, create excuses that, that protect your self-image. So if I stay out late and party on Friday night before a big exam that I'm supposed to ace, mm-hmm. that staying out late and partying gives me a, an excuse in case I fail. Well, it's not that I'm stupid. It's that I was out late partying. It allows me to protect. It's not, it, you know, it allows me to protect my self-image. And on the other hand, if I stay out late and party and still ace the exam, that only makes my triumph more heroic. So those are those are that's a that's a silly example of self-handicapping. Procrastination is an example of self-handicapping because I think often we are procrastinating, putting things off in an effort to protect ourselves, protect our image of ourselves as competent or able able to achieve. Yeah, yeah. it makes sense. But <laughs> as a believer in serendipity and having stayed out at parties too late too many times, not necessarily doing substance abuse, but certainly maybe having a too, few too many beers or whiskeys. I've always got the great belief that some serendipitous connection or moment or spark of conversation will enhance something that happens the next day. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I don't think we have enough time today to get into it, but the whole concept of free will is an interesting area yeah. to explore. And if you get into, I don't know if you're a listener of Sam Harris's podcast, and his he's written a book on free will, and that can take us down a really interesting rabbit hole yeah. around serendipity and curiosity and, and procrastination. But maybe that's for a follow-up and okay. do a bit more sort of thinking on that. I'm a believer in, I'm a big believer in free will. For me, I just, I, I hate it when everyone else is free will gets in the way in the way of my free will. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Can I just take this in a slightly different direction around contemporary culture and society now? That there feels to me there's a tension in society that we have this worship for productivity. Yeah. Talked about it, you've mentioned it. Yet whether amidst all these productivity hacks and podcasts that talk about getting more out of your life and doing more, faster, smarter cheaper, whatever. We also seek or we're sipping from this chalice of creativity that we all want to be more creative, more curious and that that tension. What's your view on how educators and educational institutions need to start to think about the concept and you'd say which concept the concept of procrastination because you you spoke to a lot of people about the theory of it you've given examples of great procrastinators and great prodigious output it's something that feels to me that should be explored in educational institutions to get children to think about the concept of who they are as individuals Mm. and to wrestle with this because it can torment it can torment you particularly when you're under pressure to be Productive. Have you got any? Have you had any right. sort of conversations around that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I've, I've spent um, a fair amount of time talking on college campuses. This is procrastination is a huge issue for academic counselors and advisors on college campuses. They, the director of the writing center or the director of the academic success center or whatever has a long line of students waiting to see him or her about their study issues, their inability to study, their inability to focus, their inability to get their work done on time. It all comes down to, you know, work habits, productivity, procrastination. So, yeah, um, that's that's a huge issue for them. For younger kids, I mean, I hear what you're saying about sort of culting, cultivating your individuality, and it, it's tricky in a school because school is made to do anything but that. Schools, you know, we're funneling everyone into, like, the same meat grinder and sort of... Uh, but yeah, but it's a, a, a 20th, and a 19th century, 20th century methodology right. of education yeah. in a world today where we need much more 
individualism, curiosity, creativity. Totally, totally agree. Albeit with a, a productive focus. Right. I, I I couldn't agree more. The trick is how to do that when your class is when you have a class of forty individuals, and how how does how does an overtaxed uh, educator cultivate each one of those individualities? I, I I don't have an answer other than other than to say that recognize that school isn't the only avenue to pursue that. Well, it's maybe an interesting conversation for some educational policymakers. Right. right. But I think it's an important uh, concept that we have to grasp. There's a quote, again, I can't remember who said it. It's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. You did grasp the nettle and you finally wrote soon. <laughs> um, so it's something you've probably been procrastinating about for some time, I suspect. Gra- grasp the nettle. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's a new one. I, I think. I uh, maybe that. it's a Scottish term. I must have, be. We, we have, have a lot the, of nettles. We have nettles and right. we fall into them a lot of the time and it's not very pleasant. This, I, this, I haven't remembered that one. Although it wouldn't, it wouldn't sound as charming coming from me with my Chicago well, accent. I, I don't know. Grasp the nettle. <laughs> uh, well, hey, grasp your own nettle, pal. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, that has a different context, probably. <laughs> you might you might get yourself um, a headbutt in Glasgow if you say that to someone in that, with that tone of voice. Andrew, just be warned. Okay, got it. Um, if you could just maybe just take us back to what of what finally was the the tipping point to getting you started on writing this book and producing what I think is a, a really valuable book. Well, thanks. The usual uh, fear, a panic, adult feeling of adult responsibility, the need for money, all those, all those things. Um, I mean, I, I found out that over the over the few years that I was working on the book, people would ask me as they are want to do, "What are you working on?" I'm working on a book about procrastination, and the response was almost always something along the lines of, "Oh, that's the book for me. I'm the world's worst procrastinator." Oh, I, or or best. Well, but no, that's the thing is they would almost always attach a very pejorative label to it. So they would say I'm the world's worst procrastinator or I'm a terrible procrastinator. So the label was always would suggest that they feel a lot of shame about it. But on the other hand, they're openly bragging about it to me like the stranger next to them on the airliner. So there's this weird mix of shame and and pride in your procrastination. I mean, and I think, you know, when we talk about, we do feel like a perverse pride in procrastinating because yeah, I'm procrastinating. I'm, 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 I'm sticking it to the, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bow down to the system. And so, so yeah, so there was, there's that ambivalence. Sort of societal soldiering. Right, right. So, and, and in my own case, in the course of writing the book, I think one of the things I learned about myself, not that it's of interest to anyone, but me, but I, I think I learned that I'm not the procrastinator that I thought I was. I mean, I too would have described myself as the world's worst procrastinator at one time, but I clearly I'm not even in the running. I mean, it's a, 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 I would have gotten would not have gotten past like the first round in the in the procrastination tournament. I, I would have been eliminated very early yeah. on, and I feel a little ashamed about that because I mean, I always wore the badge a little slight, uh, perversely proudly, and and um, I wanted to think of myself that way. But uh, it turns out I'm just another. I'm just diligent, and it turns out I'm just I have a deep sense of responsibility and I I know I've been a journalist and a writer for 25 30 years now and I meet most of my deadlines so because there has come a point at which to and I think I when I heard you speak at Neuhaus about this when I became aware of the book is that delivery is always a part of procrastination so the people that don't deliver the people that just never get on and, and don't do they're not procrastinators. There has to be another term for them. Huh. I'm not sure what you mean by delivery. I mean, I do think that there are two different... There, are, I mean... Well, you to wh- take that term you use in the book. You're busy doing something... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. 
that but when you know you should be doing something else, yeah. I can I have to get the book and look at it. It's in the last couple of pages. Yeah, yeah. I talked about right the, the thing you're supposed to be doing it's instead of the thing, thing you know you yeah, should be doing. Yeah. So that is a great way of summing up procrastinators. But there are people that will never get to the thing that they know they should be doing, and they die always uh, with the regret, and they look back on it. They're not. Are they still procrastinators? Hmm. Could they fall into that bucket, or are procrastinators the people that actually? Well, at some at some point, I mean, it it, it gets to, it gets a little dizzying. I mean, you're asking you're asking me which is the you're all. I mean, you're always you're you're choosing. You're, well, you're doing one thing, so in any choice you make, you're putting off doing something else. So in that sense, you're always procrastinating. I mean, if you really want to be silly and and reductive about it, and mm-hmm. I, I I I choose to be yes, silly and reductive. So yeah, so in that sense, any choice you make is is putting off something, and I've had that feeling of getting so turned around and dizzy by my own choices that I'm not sure if I'm if I'm procrastinating or not anymore, uh, or which is it that I'm which is which is the procrastination, which is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. It gets a little complicated sometimes. Um, okay, well let's have a little bit of fun. If you were handed the keys to the mayor's office, New York, um, or even better, the White House, what would you start doing? first and not procrastinating on to help improve the future opportunities of this country. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> well, before, Maybe bef- take, I've taken a little bit of coffee while you have a think about it. Be- before you added that last little bit, I mean, I thought I was just going to get to run around in the office for a while after hours or something. I was imagining <laughs> you do uh, that as well. doing, the, doing something on the uh, office copier or something. But no, I have, to, I have to do something for the good of other people. I'm not, I'm not very good at, at, at that. The line you were following earlier about education and Mm -hmm. inspires me to think that maybe finding a way to rethink the way we educate young people would be a useful thing that's very vague and inexact but that might be a a good way to spend some time in the in the mayor's office or or the white house okay that's a good one um (laughs) i could probably sort of follow up with a it's it's funny actually just when you say that it makes me think i wrote this article um in the, I think it was in the HuffPo a few years ago, called The Future of Getting Lost. The Future of Getting Lost. <laughs> yeah, and it was actually, it, funnily enough, it was about Darwin's thinking path. Uh. And I wrote it around the concept of what I call getting digitally fit, uh. that we are constantly facing the pressure and the, the distraction of browsers and apps, yeah. which can lead us into a procrastination rabbit hole. Yeah. And we need time if we're going to be creative and productive with our creativity and come up with new ideas and innovations and inventions that are going to change the world, you can't be in a beta state of being wired on coffee in, in your browser with 40 tabs open, jumping around, always distracted. You need the ability to think, to have ideas. And ideas don't happen when you're following social media distractions and browser distractions. So there is something interesting when you talk about education, of the need to start to address this these digital distractions that people are facing it, through education at school, outside school, and to foster the ability to ha- be more creative and more curious and have ideas and have the space to think. Yeah. Whether it be lying on your sofa as you do or yeah. Darwin walking down his thinking path. Yeah. And it's an important, it's an imperative for society if we're going to be a, a productive society of hopefully of productive procrastinators. Right, <laughs> right. 
Um, but yeah, that was just an observation and reflection when you mentioned the educational sort of imperative. Right. right. I mean, and I think the whole promise of so much of the information technology was that it was going to liberate us, yeah, and, and it was supposed to make us more creative. And I mean, I, I think in some ways it does, mm-hmm. but I mean, I guess there's a cost to everything and and I, we're i think most of us becoming acutely aware of some of those costs now yeah like with the distraction and yeah. with the, and a lot of other costs attached to it yeah well i don't think any of us have the answers right now but it's certainly worthy of uh, further discussion um some quick fire questions andrew what principles do you stand by i stand by honesty mm, humor that's a good one I, I think I think uh, I, I would I would stop there. Yeah. I think the, I think those are the two biggies for me. Yeah, they're good. I like that. Um, what hard choices have hit, uh, What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to have been the right decision in the end? Well, the, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I'm really lousy at making hard choices. Usually, my my uh, decision making process involves asking my wife what I should do. And letting her figure it out, which has really worked out well for me. Choosing choosing to, to marry her was a pretty big decision, and really worked out well. And like Darwin, I think I, I married a little late, and was for reasons that aren't really clear to me. I was ambivalent about it, and unsure about it, and afraid of it. Um, but that's about all that's coming to my mind. Okay, that's fine. Where do you go? To, to, uh, we've, I think we've answered this, or you've answered it. Where do you go to discover new ideas where you need space to think? Well, you're thinking the couch. Is that so? I've, I, I've noticed that. So I've become the spokesman for laying on the couch. I know. I'm liking. It. I'm liking it a lot. <laughs> I um I, I walk a ton. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I walk everywhere, and I find myself doing a lot of thinking while I walk. And uh, I do a lot of writing while I walk, and although usually the writing I do while I walk, it's funny. I'll be I'll be working out something in my head, and I'll think, "Oh, I got it! I got like I, I could like write the paragraph in my head, and that's the paragraph I was looking for. That's gonna that's gonna be the perfect transition. Got it? And I'll like rush home to put down this genius paragraph down on paper and when I actually get it on paper it sucks yeah. I mean it puts something I don't, but there's there's that feeling that of I don't know that the, the, there's some sort of energy you get when you're walking that makes you that makes me dece- deceive myself into thinking that what I've created is actually good mm-hmm. so um, but yeah I think my thinking place like like uh, the, maybe the only way that I'm like Darwin uh, I'd like to think while I walk yeah yeah no, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. So it's getting out and looking up as a common yeah. um, response. Yeah. Um, who are your influences, great influences and inspirations? Among writers, uh, uh, a novelist named Walker Percy, an essayist, a nonfiction writer, well, actually fiction writer too, named Jeff Dyer. Um, For what reason? Dyer's really jazzy and self-deprecating. Walker Percy for his sort of uh, Catholic... Um, irony, music, uh, sort of. Um, I mean, I, I I love I love jazz and baroque music, but the music that influences me sort of professionally as a writer is like post punk, and um, I, I love the energy and the and the independence of it, mm-hmm. and I try to. Um, it makes me. Uh, it's it's like a bravery injection for me. I feel like if, if Mission of Burma can do that, then uh, then I could I could do a little bit of that as as a writer. Um, I think writers have to be a little brave and have to take a deep breath and dive off the high dive platform just about every day. And um, mm-hmm. and what? Give me a couple of examples of your post punk um, 
bands that you would listen to? Um, Wire, mm-hmm. Mission of Burma, I love. Wire, great, yeah. Um, uh, well, I'm going to see a Clash cover band on Sunday. Well, which is looking forward what, to what, that. Are they, what are they called? Um, that's a good point. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, it's uh, my friend. I've got a friend called uh, a photographer, Graham McIndoe. Okay. Scottish, but being over here since 91 is a massive punk fan. Yeah. Some of the cover uh, bands, are, they, 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 they can and be really good. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a Clash cover band, but uh, yeah. Well, I'll let you know how they are. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, how do you keep up with technology? I don't. I'm I'm an absolute boob mm. with technology. That's period. an answer. That's a very straight <laughs> answer then. Yeah, okay. Um, we've got this question we call the impossible question. Uh, it would be your advice to someone who might be 20 years younger than you, who might have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, um, maybe to be a writer um, or procrastinating um, or has been told by either his parents as teachers or his peers that that's impossible yeah you'll never do it what would your advice be to them oh that's no one should ever be told that um, but people are <laughs> right um, no I mean it's especially uh, you, you need you need to go you need to go give yourself a chance and go explore and otherwise you'll wonder whether you um, I mean this is couldn't couldn't be more prosaic advice mm. but it's the truth yeah if you don't give yourself the chance at least then you'll always wonder if you could have and you'll always regret not having done it uh, especially when you're young I mean I, I, I it took me a while to work up the nerve to do what I really wanted to do and to do it in the way I really wanted to do it so that by the time I was actually doing a little bit nervy stuff I was you know, had a family and a kid and I you know that was that's a terrible position to be in but when you're young and and need only worry about yourself and can afford to live live a little more bohemianly mm-hmm. is that a word bohemianly let's make uh-huh. it a word <laughs> uh when, when you're in that circumstance man that's that's the time to go for it and, and take your chances it's funny I interviewed Michael Ventura who runs a design studio called uh, Sub Rosa in, in the West Village and he, he mentioned a quote that his friend's father told him which was if you don't get into trouble you'll never know how to get out of it that's yeah that's, which I, I thought was lovely and yeah. <laughs> excuses all the bad behaviour from my youth <laughs> I like that a lot yeah but don't tell your children right right <laughs> that is the it's always one for your children's your friend's children um, so finish with two questions what book other than your own uh, do you want us to offer our listeners who submit the best comments in the comment section oh um i would i would recommend can i recommend a novel of course i would recommend a novel by the guy i mentioned a little earlier walker percy it's called the movie goer it was published in 1961 uh available on amazon yes oh great okay and and um the reason I'm recommending it is because it's it's about a uh, a young youngish uh, guy trying to figure out where he's go- going and and or where he's not going, and in the process doing a lot of things wrong and doing a lot of things that we might describe as bad. But I, I like that I like the honest failure that he's making of his life, and a lot of good Catholic stuff in there too. And it's it's kind of sardonically funny too so okay, yeah the, mo- a, the movie goer by walker percy sounds a good read okay look forward to reading that yeah. and oh but bettina approves she, bettina, she, she, she also wow. endorses it that's great yeah we should say we're we're joined here by bettina our producer final question who should we interview next but 
maybe instead of uh, uh, suggesting a person, maybe I could suggest a category. I would lo- I would love to hear a, a, a musician or songwriter talk about his or her craft and the role of serendipity okay. in in cre- in creation. Well, if you think of one, okay, after the interview, okay. Just ping me on right, Instagram. You, yeah. And Instagram are our new sort of reliable DMing sort of strategy. Okay. Keeping up with technology, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you were wrong, you do. Um that that's it. I just there's some interesting things I I didn't touch on. Do you mind if I just quickly just yeah. rattle off a couple of thoughts and just see where you riff with it? Yeah, yeah. There was something that was said in the book and someone saying heaven can wait or someone. It was a... Uh, yeah, so this, when I went down to New Orleans, I talked to, uh, so I went to New Orleans to check out this shrine to St. Expedite, who is supposed to have been the patron saint of procrastination. And um, I met the parish priest who takes care of this statue, the shrine in, in the church. And yeah, so he his, his sermon, one of his sermons was retelling a, a story Right, so the priest was talking to the congregation. He wanted he wanted a, he wanted a show of hands, of who who in the congregation wanted yeah, to go to heaven? It. Yeah, yeah. And nobody raised their hand. I think everyone raised their hand, bar okay. one. That was oh, okay. And he asked the one person why he didn't raise his hand, and he said, "Well, I thought you meant like right now." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he he was he was okay with the idea of going to heaven. He just wasn't quite ready. It's to go funny. I, I, I was reading that. And that got me thinking about the whole Catholicism link and and the Protestant work ethic link. It did make me just think about jihadist suicide bombers who are chasing heaven uh, and, the, and right. the virgins. They certainly never had any problem with procrastination. <laughs> right. Well, that I mean, for me, and I, I, I don't I don't have a lot of experience with that. But you know, the idea of putting things off is a tremendously important one uh, or one in my education. I mean, the idea was always that if you waited too long to get right with God, uh-huh. then you, you, it might be too late. Yeah. Don't leave it to death's door. I, mean, I, I cannot tell you how many hours I spent as a kid, like really fascinated and terrified by the idea of eternity. And, and I mean, it's a, what a thing to lay on a kid. I mean, apart from, apart, apart from the idea of eternal punishment, which is horrifying in its own way, certainly. Just the idea of eternity itself, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really mind-boggling to me. I mean, even eternal bliss is a little scary to me. There's always a little bit of time pressure involved mm-hmm. in salvation or in redemption and, or in any kind of Christian uh, acceptance of, of, you know, the Almighty. You talked in the book about, you gave examples of uh, Aristotle and Socrates and their views on it. And I think Socrates had a term he created called acrasia yeah i think that's right yeah and that was uh and i maybe put a link in the show notes about that because i thought that was a really interesting way of just showing that this has been around for eternity that it's nothing there's nothing new and there's nothing to actually feel guilty about right yeah that is actually it's a positive facet of your character right yeah the the idea behind acrasia and the debate behind it was whether it's possible for a rational person to acts contrary to his own good mm-hmm. so that i mean if you're if you're acting opposite to your own to your own good then you must be you must be an irrational person uh, so that the debate is whether is whether whether a, a, a rational person can act in a way that he knows is is bad for him which is what procrastinators do mm-hmm. every every day that's what i do every day it's funny I'd, i'm an avid listener to um 
productivity type podcasts like the Tim Ferriss show and, yeah. and Kevin Rose show. And, and the term that's often, and people talk about a lot, is having on their fridge or above their computer the uh, the Latin phrase, memento mori. Yeah. As a reminder to seize the day to yeah. do more with but it. The, don't you think that if you have to have those reminders, though, you're, it's too late? Yeah, <laughs> I, I go by this. I go by this co-working. I, rest, I mean, I go by this co-working space every day. I don't. I'm not a member there. I, I subscribe to the Groucho Marx mm. approach. Mm. That I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. <laughs> but like the paste then on the outside of this workspace, all these slogans about make it happen now, seize the day, and and I'm thinking like if you needed to have some inspirational thing painted on your wall to i mean first of all does that really make anyone seize the day mm. and if you do if you do seize the day only because of the, i don't know i just there's a there's a contrarian in me that wants to rebel against all that slogan making well you um, bet you've never really bought into just do it I, I i haven't on the other hand you know one of the things I do part time is I, I work with kids as a coach. You, mm-hmm. you talked about yeah, athle- like athle- base- yeah as a base- coach, baseball yeah. coach. I mean, you, and you mentioned athletics before. And I mean, I'm constantly exhorting kids to do their due diligence and to do what they're supposed to do and get it done. And um, I, I talk out of both sides of my mouth constantly. And I, I have a son at home who I expect to be diligent and and get his work done on time. Complete, complete hypocrite you're talking to right now, Mark. Well, I remember back in uh, my first job in advertising, we were sent on a productivity course. And one of the enduring things that I took away from it was a, um, a great excuse for a procrastinator, which was a, a decision-making matrix um, yeah. called uh, do it, delete it, defer it, delegate it. And when I read in the book about the Eisenhower's yeah. matrix, I was going... The buggers, they stole it from Eisenhower and they never gave him credit. You could get away with that back in the 80s right, or 90s, um, but not anymore. And I thought that was really useful. So well, there, the, in, a, in a way, you were saying you speak out both sides of your mouth, but it's not. There, there's this time to procrastinate yes. and there's time to do. And it's knowing when. There you I go. think that's really interesting. I, thank you. Thank you for sticking up for me. But I think that you, well, we you are stick right. Up, we stick up <laughs> for each other. <laughs> but you know, it's funny about the matrices that you talked about. And I mean, the, the history of those. I mean, there, there's a book. I don't know if anyone's already written it. But I mean, there's a whole book in that. And the, the, oh, the, I mean, totally. fr- Franklin had his own yeah. matrix. And, and you know, we talked about Darwin's pro and con lists. Well, I mean, there, who's someone's got the book. Uh, is it Stephen... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it wrong, so I probably shouldn't say it. I, I think it's Stephen Johnson has a book out about decision making and, and, how, and how we make big decisions. I could, be, mm-hmm. I could be wrong about who it is, but there is a book out about that. And that's what these matrices are all about and, and ways of pro and, pro and con lists as, as a strategy for decision making. And I mean, there's, a whole, well, I think there's a whole history of that. I mean, I think you get into, I'm supposed to be going to see Daniel Kahneman, the yeah, behavioral scientist, yeah. talking and the book, wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. And I think there's a whole area there around you could sort of a, you could apply procrastination theory into that and the combination of delivering both sides, how the both sides of the brain work. Right, totally. And Behavioral that, economists are, are really into procrastination. I'm really interested in studying procrastination. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm going to have to sort of sit down with a behavioral scientist at some point and explore this further. I haven't had time. I did another guest on the show as a psychotherapist, and I pinged her about procrastination. She sent me a link, and I didn't have time to sort uh, of digest it, but I might put uh, the blog post on it later. It's and, funny. And, it's, it's a topic, procrastination, is that it gets looked at from so many different 
angles. I mean, if you go to like just in terms of academic disciplines that are interested in it, I mean, you know, there's philosophers and there's psychologists and there's behavioral economists and mm-hmm. uh, psychiatry and and uh, general medicine, um, and they all have their own sort of ways of framing the issues around procrastination, their own ways of talking about it, their own vocabulary, and their own ways of sort of curing it or dealing with it. And they all, the thing that's amazing to me, they all make total sense to me so that, and even the ones that are diametrically opposed to each other. So the philosopher will be saying one thing and the, and the behavioral economist will be saying completely another, and I'll be nodding at both of them and say, right on, bro. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I was the same when I was reading your book. Like I said, even preparing for this, I tried to make um, points of what, for and against. Mm-hmm. You can't because there is no sort of obvious binary way of approaching procrastination as yeah. a negative. It's, uh, as I say, it's something to reflect on. Right. Um, just to ask you if people want to follow you or find the book, uh, where can they find it? And they're going to they're gonna find the book anywhere good books are sold. They can also go to my website, which is andrewsantella.com. There's a link to the, to the, to the book there. Um, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, I have no idea what my handles are. I'll put it in the show notes. My, my, if you if you reach out to uh, my wife or my kid, either one of them will be able to tell you. But uh, I, I don't I don't know what. Uh, yeah. And what's next for Andrew Santella once you've stopped procrastinating? Yeah, I'm working on another book about why we believe bizarre things. I'm not. We'll, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, baseball team of choice. I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. Ooh. <laughs> there's not Happy a, days. There's not a, there's not a lot of us uh, here in New York. There's not a lot of us in Chicago, for that matter. There's a, I tell people from Chicago, and they know I'm a baseball fan, and they immediately think I'm a, I'm a Cubs fan. And, uh, yeah, and, and um, there seems to be uh, some confusion about the fact that there is another team in Chicago. Uh. Yeah. So. Well, you're New York now, so you can maybe have association with a, a never, successful never, no, baseball team. No. Possibly. Would never do that. <laughs> never. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate I it. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you okay. for having thank me. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. okay. Thanks. Good. Okay, folks. That's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe. And ideally, give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.